Hey there, this is a Wild Femme episode. I'm Jenny Holbert, and in this episode, I am going to be speaking with Georgie Kovacs. She is a special guest today because she is the founder of Femme Power Health, and this is a go-to resource for all things women's health serving women, their providers, and companies looking to build and improve on products for women. She also hosts the Femme Power Health podcast, where she interviews experts to help women better understand how to navigate their health both day to day and in partnership with their providers. And her mission is to minimize the years that many take to seek proper diagnosis and treatment. And I just love that she's our guest here today because as you know, Wild around here is not only about all things nature-inspired wellness, but also about women into living their dreams. And I think Georgie and her work just really embodies that, really exemplifies that. So welcome, Georgie. Thank you. It's so nice to be here and thanks for having me. Yeah. And for those who don't know you for besides being the founder of Femme Power Health, I'm curious, what is it that you would love to most be known for? Uh, well, I would say in my career, I'm most known for making things happen. Um, so I would say that, and I've always, um, said on my tombstone, I wanted to say that I made a difference. And I think the two ways that I want to do that are through FemPower Health and raising my awesome five-year, well, he's now five years old. He won't stay five forever. Um, and my awesome son. So those are, those are my missions. So hopefully that kind of puts things into context. Yes. And I know that much of your journey in founding FemPower Health really came out of your own experience with endometriosis and infertility years ago. So could you tell us a little bit more about that and how that led you to this mission that you have for educating women? Sure. Um, So I'm going to take my glasses off because they keep sliding down my nose. I love my new cool glasses, but they're so annoying (laughs) sometimes. Um, So in 2010, I had just gotten married and, you know, I had a plan just like every woman has the plan. And the plan was come back from honeymoon, get off birth control, start trying for kids, get pregnant one or two months later, boom. And there the journey begins. And uh, yeah, that is not what happened. Um, Right after the honeymoon, I happened to have an OBGYN appointment. I think it was an annual exam or something. And she asked me a series of questions, took some blood, and then calls me the next day and says, you need to go um, to a fertility doctor. You need fertility treatments. And I'm like, what? And I think I spent the next four years and even some time after having my son on what I called the fertility hamster wheel. And I... um, you know, spent a really long time struggling to figure out what was going on with me. I was diagnosed with unexplained infertility, which to me felt more like either the doctors weren't trying hard enough or the data wasn't there quite yet to be able to explain uh, what could have been going on with me. And lo and behold, it turned out that I had endometriosis, which is part of why um, I was struggling to get pregnant. And what's interesting is part of why I think it could have taken time is one, I didn't have severe symptoms. I used to say I was asymptomatic, but the more that I'm doing with this podcast and talking to experts, the more I'm realizing I probably did have symptoms, but they were relatively minor that I didn't even notice they were symptoms of endometriosis. Um, but the experts also disagree on whether or not you need to treat endometriosis in order to be successful with getting pregnant. Cause I was doing IVF after all. So it's supposed to bypass 
you know, all the, the issues that endometriosis can cause, but the issue is it also causes inflammation, which can impact things going on in your uterus. And so, um, you know, fast forward with this dream, I've always had to make a difference. Um, I started down the path of trying to, um, optimize people's fertility journeys and, you know, a, a couple things. One, I wasn't sure how people could understand that I truly did have a unique perspective because I come from the biopharmaceutical industry. So I have a major healthcare background. I was a chemistry major. Plus I went through this experience. So I really get the whole perspective as you hear when I will talk today. And, you know, it has a lot of downstream impact. But then, you know, starting down that fertility path, I realized this is not a fertility problem. This is a women's health problem. And so that is how I expanded into women's health. And the podcast was purely by accident. It was like a, probably a COVID single mom stress scenario where I was blogging about different topics, interviewing experts. I was like, who reads blogs anymore? People listen to podcasts. And so I happened to have recorded my interviews for the blogs. And I was like, I'm just going to publish them as podcasts and see what happens. And people started downloading them. And I'm like, I guess I am becoming a podcaster. And from there, I think people have begun to realize the expertise that I have um, and understanding of kind of the broader picture. And so it's been really great to see um, the value add that I've been able to bring for women and those who are caring for women. And it's, it's truly a thrill and a dream come true. Yeah, it's super powerful that you go through something like that and then you can look for the gems or kind of your next step in it. I feel like that's what it was for you in a way it led you to this powerful work. And also the fact that you had to be a major advocate for your health, which is what I want to focus on in our conversation so much, because I think it's really important. I think that it's overlooked or a lot of people don't really see themselves in that way when they're in the the patient role or even in the support role. So where would you start with sharing with someone about advocating for their health if they are either struggling to get a diagnosis or they, in, in that they don't feel well and they think that there's something going on here. I need to figure out what's going on, whether that's diagnosis or just a series of information um, what, what would you say? What was, what, what do you wish you had heard in the beginning of your journey? Sure. So, you know, I thought a lot about how I would discuss this topic with you. And I think what's really important is to set the context around what we as women are facing, because without that context, it's hard to jump right into the steps for advocating And I say this because, you know, with my own personal experience, you know, I had my frustrations, like here's the checklist of things I wish someone would have given me. And then when I started doing the podcast and I'm so grateful for the guests who are sharing and um, I learned that there's really a system that goes into all of this. And I think because some women, we may be afraid to ask questions. We may be afraid to speak up. We may not know what we don't know. Um, without that context, it's almost, you know, scary to do what we need to do. So I thought I'd start there if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so in, in the healthcare field, we kind of look at this triad of the patient, the payer, which is the insurance company, as well as the provider, which is your clinician, whether they're a doctor or a naturopath, acupuncturist or whatever. And you look at that whole triad. 
So we, as the patient may have something going on, whether it's, you know, annual visits and checkups, or it's an actual issue that we're facing, we go see a provider. And then we have an insurance company that covers it, doesn't cover it. And we could do a whole other topic on, on that. And, you know, there's a system on how, you know, those, like, I, I almost feel like there's like a foundation to that, which is products. It's, um, you know, and the products can be a drug, a medication, a supplement. It can be, um, you know, even these apps that are like fertility tracking apps and things like that. And, you know, and, and then underneath that too, is how the providers get their information and how the insurance companies pay for our healthcare. A lot of it is based on clinical trials and data. And so if you go back to 1992, and I actually wrote a paper on this and forgot about it, but I wrote the paper in 1992, the FDA had mandated that women partake in clinical trials. 1992. It was not that long ago. I mean, I was in my late teens. I was either just in college or graduating high school. That was when they mandated. But everyone, it takes time to do a clinical trial because, you know, you have to figure out if there's going to be a drug. You then have to design the clinical trial. You have to recruit, then you have to conduct it. Then you have to analyze the data. And then you have to deal with the FDA to get approval. And this is like, if you're developing a drug, right? Then there's, you know, just research and understanding diseases. So whether it's a drug or understanding a disease, there's research that's involved. So that's 1992. (laughs) And, you know, the impact of this are things like, I think Ambien is one of the big stories, which is when that drug came out, women were starting to have like a lot of car accidents and, you know, walking in their sleep. And it turned out the dosage of the drug should be different for men versus women. And so that was one of the things that came out. So it's a huge impact by not, you know, mandating that women partake in clinical trials. Then you also see data like for endometriosis specifically, Um, when you look at the disease burden, um, the the cost of the disease, the cost of the drug, uh, sorry, the disease burden, I don't know why I'm not saying it right. Um, versus the, uh, dollars that the NIH spends for funding for diabetes, it's 350 to one. And for endometriosis, it's 3000 to one. So what that translates to is huge disease burden very little funding. Okay. And so now when you see these trials aren't enough for women, the dollars aren't as much there. Um, And in a lot of cases, I'm seeing things like women are treated as being sick when maybe we aren't sick. We're dealing with life stage changes like in perimenopause and menopause or, you know, hormonal changes. And it doesn't necessarily always mean we're sick or depressed you know, I'm not saying we aren't, you know, we may need medications for that, but there's just a lot of misunderstanding and lack of understanding. And so you have your provider who has limited information. You come in, you aren't taught as a teenager, how your body's supposed to work outside of you get a period, tell your mom, you're going to get some tampons or pads. It happens once a month. It can hurt really bad. You don't even know how much you're supposed to bleed or not. Oh, by the way, if you're going to start having sex, use a condom and then go. 
that is it. And in doing this podcast, every single episode, I just, my jaw drops open with the things that I'm learning and astounded that we aren't taught. So we don't know. And then the payers or insurance companies are funding healthcare based on the data and information that they have. So it's, it's kind of, when you put that triad and the support system underneath that, you see that there's this dynamic. And, and so I guess first, I just want to get your thoughts on that because I, I think that that dynamic is huge. And by the way, one other thing, <clears throat> when it comes to a clinical trial, one thing I want to be very clear on is you're solving for an end point or a, and or, well, I shouldn't say or, and sometimes secondary endpoints, right? And so you're not like, for example, let's say you want to see if a drug works for, um, I don't know, heavy bleeding. So you want to, let's say the drug is, it reduces, you know, heavy bleeding. So then you have to measure heavy bleeding, but the drug could actually have other impacts. Mm -hmm. But unless you have it established as a secondary endpoint, and power the clinical trial to be able to assess that, you can't prove it. So that shows again, the importance of understanding how delayed it was that we're really starting to gather this information. And yes, there were other ways that information was being gathered and trials were being done. But I think just putting into perspective, it hasn't been enough to truly give us the information we need. And I, I think that's just an important perspective as well. And so I I commend all the companies now who are really understanding women's health is critical to the world in, you know, getting us the help that we need. Um, We're a major player in in impacting this world and we need to be healthy and and informed and empowered. So hopefully that whole thing helps, but it's a big dynamic that we are starting with. Yeah. So many just things there and what you said, I mean, Yes, the web of interconnectedness and the fact that when it's so interconnected, it's sometimes it's even difficult to see what which part needs unraveled to kind of look for a better solution. And it also makes me think of when you were talking about education for when humans are young and like what we learned and what we didn't learn and what would be important and in place then and even based on your experience as a parent and, and what you see, what you've heard, what, what other people share with you, like what would be a good starting point there. And also it comes from the angle of like in healthcare, what is the, what is the end goal? And I think patients go in wanting health. They want support with well-being. They want to feel better. And oftentimes I look at it and I wonder if there's a mutual path there because I think there are good intentions behind it, but somewhere along the way, we we've, we've missed a lot of the pieces that actually create true health. And there's a lot of other goals in there or other, um, other objectives along the way. A lot of it has to do with financial gain. It has to do with things that are not necessarily linked to health. It's not about the person's health all the time. And I do, I think that practitioners have hearts that want to help people, you know, they want to go into it with this, these support tools that they're given when they're getting their education and they're in medical school or learning about all of this. But then it's like they get into this system that wasn't necessarily designed for what they hoped for in every way. 
And I think that in some ways it is set up for people to, um, or not set up for people to like create all the answers that, that they need for their health and well-being, And yet they're going into it, expecting that and outsourcing that to someone else is really dangerous because when you don't have that knowledge yourself to be able to make those personal choices, then you are giving up a lot to someone who may not know as much about your body as you. And I think it's just this picture of like needing to bring in the resources, the information, hear from professionals, hear from practitioners, get the test results. You know, I'm not saying that any of those things aren't, don't have their place, but there's so much power that lies in our own choices and our knowledge that we have. And rather than step into it thinking, well, I'm the patient, that's the doctor, the test needs to tell me what is going on. The doctor needs to tell me then what exactly to do. I think there's more of a relationship that could take place where there's further inquiry and more dialogue between the practitioner and the patient. And again, I'm not sure that each practitioner even has the space to be able to do that if they have that desire. So I don't know if there's anything there that you want to expand upon or thoughts as a parent and educating children or educating just women in general, like you were talking about with being more informed and asking more questions. What are some good questions to ask? What things do we need to be informed about? How do you not only advocate, but be curious about your health and do that on a daily basis, even when you're not just at a doctor's appointment? Right. You know, it's, it, again, it's, you know, first the, the statements that I made in the beginning, I certainly don't want anyone to feel overwhelmed because there is so much that we can do. And honestly, all of us can do it. The companies developing products, um, clinicians, you name it. And I talked to so many people, um, you know, my best friend is a doctor and I talked to her a lot about, you know, how do you have those conversations and what can patients do? And I think you know, I know that this is probably geared more towards um, women as the, as the patient. And I just want everyone to know, like, clinicians want us to advocate for ourselves. And I think putting into perspective that they're running around, the world has changed a lot. Um, they're seeing patient after patient, the amount of time they can spend is limited. And it's frustrating. Like, I think all of us, even the clinicians would agree that things need to change, but it is what it is. So within the reality of the world that we are in, you know, what are the solutions? Um, so I think the number one thing, and you were alluding to this, is get to know who you are. And I think a good way to do that is through tracking. Now, some, like I know when I was going through fertility treatments, I'm like, seriously, now I need to add tracking to my list. And so I, I think let's start with the baseline of do what you can. So let's start there. This is not about, I'm going to give you like this long list of things to do, but I would say, do what you can. And outside of that, here are suggestions. And then out of that, you do what you can. So keeping a journal. And I think the journal should include things like what you're eating, when you're eating, how much you're sleeping. I think when you go to bed, when you wake up is also important because of the circadian rhythm. Um, you know, exercise. And I'm not saying like, I took 300 steps today and 303, you know, the day before. And I think it's just as much as you can, you know, tracking those types of things, um, your medications and supplements, you know, and any of these like over the counter, anything. Um, I don't know what categories people might put them in. So I want to say broader because people may not even consider things that are not supplements, but they should list all that down. So anything you're ingesting, 
and how you're spending your time is really critical to be tracking. Because I think once you write it down, you can start to see patterns and it also helps your clinician. And, you know, when you, when it is time to go to that clinician, I think it's helpful to be armed with information. So I wouldn't go in and show them, you know, a a year's worth of journaling, but I think if you just, even for like a week monitor and see some themes, you're like, oh my goodness, aha, but then also medical records. And so like, um, these are really critical. And I would even say, don't just get the medical record, give it to your next doctor. And then that's it really review it because I know in my experience, Experience when I've had to pass medical records down, I'm not always 100% sure they're really reviewed. I think it's just like a send it and that's it. I, I don't, I wouldn't guarantee that everyone's able to review it, but like there's nuances in there. Like for example, I did a podcast on cervical cancer and apparently if you get an HPV test, if you really want to be astute, you should know what type of HPV you had if you tested positive, because that could be an indicator of cervical cancer. And so having these medical records, um, because I think now like we're in the routine of, okay, they wanna know the first day of your last cycle. They wanna know, did you have surgeries? Like those basic things. But I think people really need to, you know, internalize like why that information is so important. And hopefully the illustration of that HPV is, um, helpful that it's not just this random checklist of stuff. Like it, they really mean something. And if your clinician doesn't seem to do much with that, then I think it's worth, you know, you bringing up these things and, you know, asking questions. And then you talked about asking questions. So I do think it's important to prepare questions to ask and, One bit of advice that I was given, and I think this is an important one, is it's a 10-minute appointment (laughs) and maybe seven. And if you're able to pay for cash-paying doctor, um, you know, who's able to have more time or a specialist, they tend to have more time. You know, you can have much more conversation of a much longer and deeper of a conversation. But in your typical appointment, you know, you really want to be prepared with what are the one or two things that are your biggest pain points? Cause those pain points could also be what's causing most of your issues, but then also coming with a list of questions. And this is a hard one because, you know, this is where you have to do your research. You know, like for example, um, Lara Bryden is one of my favorite people and in her books, she writes lists of questions of how to ask your doctor certain things um, and what questions you should be asking given what's happening with you. So there's general questions, but then there's given what's happening, there are specific types of questions you should be asking. Like for example, with thyroid, a lot of times just the TSH is being tested for, but really, you know, in a lot of cases, you actually should get a full thyroid panel. And there's a ton of people who are getting misdiagnosed um, with thyroid conditions, meaning they're not diagnosed, but have one because not all of the blood work is, is being done. And there's, you know, some controversy on that, but Honestly, the more I talk to experts, I don't think there's controversy. I think it's people just finally getting aligned on what the testing should be. So, you know, I guess just to summarize, track your information, put your, you know, find out what the themes are, think of what your biggest pain point is when you go into your doctor, and then think of the questions you want to ask so that when you're there, you're not emotional or all over the place and, you know, you're really prepared. 
Um, so that's, that's what I think we women can do to, to fully be prepared and advocate. But also too, another nuance there is as far as being informed, it's, there's, you know, we know what we don't know. We know what we know, but then there's, we don't know what we don't know. And so this is where social media has been great, but I would like to give caution on social media. (laughs) So I love the fact that people go on social media and share their stories and ask questions, because I think it really helps you start to see things like I'm not alone, or here's some tips and tricks of things I can try. But the one theme that is coming out in all of the experts I've spoken to, and even in my own journey is the answer to your situation is it depends in all cases, unless you have a broken arm, I know you need a cast, but outside of that, the answer is it depends. So just because something worked for someone else doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you. So if you see interesting things Put it down on your paper and go to your doctor and say, hey, I learned that this person had this issue and it seems like me, they tried this. What do you think? That is how you should be leveraging what you learn on social media, not now for I should try it because then it doesn't work. Then you get angry and then you may give up. So instead of going through that very emotional journey of being frustrated and waiting, because I think this is why a lot of these you know, things that we're dealing with take years to get diagnosed. Um, So I think keep that list. You're going to shorten your journey, get the answers that you need and deserve. Exactly. I was thinking of that when you were sharing about how to advocate, you don't know what you don't know. And you really addressed that well, like to sum that up is that take that information and take it with your questions say, you know, what do you think about this? And another thing I thought of when you were sharing that is that, would you agree that it's okay to get multiple opinions? I mean, meet with several practitioners about what it is that you are working on. And it may not be that one person has all the answers and whether it's a specialist in, or the same special, the same kind of specialist, but many different people, or whether it's even a different approach to medicine, whether it's an MD, a DO, an ND, it doesn't have to be all in the same realm of uh, our allopathic medicine world either. Right. You know, that's a a great question. And, And this is a hard one because I am extremely sensitive to, um, the disparities in our country and access to care. And so there's reality and then there's dream world. And the reality is, you know, depending on where you live, your financial status, and let's face it, you know, the color of your skin, all of that impacts the care that you're going to receive. And there's plenty of data out there to show that. And some of the experts I've interviewed talk about that. So, you know, I would say, you know, in a dream world, we would all have a cross-functional team, you know, um, and this is not a medical opinion. This is just what my observations, because I am not a doctor. So I want to qualify with that is my dream world is we have OBGYNs, we have a naturopath, a nutritionist, and a mental health professional, and a pelvic floor therapist. And there's probably others I'm, I might be missing, but that would be my dream team and an acupuncturist actually. 
Um, that's my dream team. And we leverage them as we need based on life stages, symptoms, questions, you name it. And that is our cross-functional team. And ideally they would be at one location, but they each bring something different and a nuance and a degree of expertise. Now, for many of us between time and money, jobs, you name it, um, that's a hard place to be. And so I think, again, the more you're armed with informing yourself, even if you have one person, mm-hmm. you can go to them, but you're right. Like the, the going doctor to doctor, you know, that can be anxiety provoking too, because then sometimes between social media and like 10 doctors opinions, ah, what do I do? And, you know, even in my fertility journey, I remember before I did my last IVF, I looked at my son's dad and I'm like, here's the deal. I'm going to just throw a ball in the roulette wheel and see where it lands. And that's the doctor we're going to go with for the last IVF. Like that's literally what happened. And so, you know, I would say definitely go to second opinions. I wouldn't necessarily um, do it whimsically. And I don't think you were suggesting that I'm just more giving perspective. Um, but I think if you're not comfortable with the advice, I, I would say do that if it's advice you don't want to hear, but you know, it's the right thing. I would say kind of just take the advice and try it. (laughs) So those are all good good things to think about. Yeah. Yeah. All interesting perspectives to definitely think about because it can be any one of those things or a combination of, and so many times too, we maybe discount our own intuition. And so going around to multiple people can often jumble that even more when we're seeking answers outside of ourselves versus within ourselves. So I think it just brings it back to that as well, that sometimes you may just need time within yourself to really hear that and, and listen, and maybe not be so caught up in making the right decision as to just knowing that there's a decision and you're making the best one for you and deciding what that is. You know, nobody's perfect. Nobody has all the answers. And at the end, you have to feel confident in your choice at least, you know, maybe, maybe not like you picked it exactly right or that, you know, it's correct, but but confident in it and feeling, feeling as good as you can moving forward. And one of the other things that you said about advocating for your health, I just love because it's something that I teach within my fitness programs too, which is tracking your cycle and tracking the other things that you might experience along with that, you know, other lifestyle factors, you sleep and your workout and within that um, as much as you can, but it just allows you to see the rhythms that you have too. And those patterns which is so important to be able to take. And I always love to ask a guest on these wild femme episodes, if you have a cycle that you anchor to and whether that's within you or in nature, moon phases, seasons, any other kinds of rhythms that you anchor to that gives you that cyclical knowing. And if you do, what, what is that? Sure. So, you know, I, I'm now in perimenopause. And so my, the way that I do it is I'm finding, and it's kind of incredible for those who might be scared of this stage in life is at my age, it's, um, the body speaks very clearly and loudly. And so I have to listen to it and, you know, people joke, Oh, at this age, you know, I used to go out to bars at nine and now I go to bed at nine and, um, it's, it's, it's so much deeper than that. And 
my body will tell me it's so fascinating. So the cycle that I listen to is my, it's just my body because it's not on a cycle. I'm in the phase of perimenopause where I never know when my cycle is going to be hitting. And, but there are themes. So like, you know, before ovulation and after ovulation, the themes are still there and what happens to the body. And so, you know, sometimes it's, you know, I got to do my HIIT workout and other times it's, I need to take a walk or I need to do yoga. So I just really try to stay in tune with what my body's saying. Um, and I would say it's more of a cycle thing, but mine is just not the typical one at the moment. So I don't know if that, that helps put it into context, but it is really cool. When you listen, your body tells you, and at this age, it tells you loudly. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure there's a good way. Like, it's not like my body's freaking out, but in a good way, it's like, your soul is like yoga today. <laughs> yeah. And that's another question I love to ask, kind of shifting into some things about you and your health. Are you moving your body today? And if so, what does that look like? Because sure. I love to ask this since it does look different every day. And I just love to hear, you know, people's thoughts on why and what that is. Sure. I mean, movement is critical. Like I, I kind of have a rule of if I don't work out for um, more than two days, I can tell. And, you know, working out doesn't have to be intense. So for me, I like to mix it up uh, between yoga and a HIIT workout and walking and swimming. Um, I try to swim twice a week and walk because I live in New York City. That's easy. I just try to walk wherever I can. Um, it is hard because with Zoom, I feel like people are getting addicted to being on video. And so I'm going to start working on seeing if people will do walking meetings (laughs) so that we can all get our walks in. Um, So it is admittedly harder now just because I'm in so many meetings, but um, yeah, I definitely try to get out and move. And those are the the activities of my choice for sure. Yeah, that's good. Good inspiration. I'm sure for other people listening, I love hearing how people love to move their body and what's something else that you do at least most days for your health. Something that I mostly do. Um, I would say the, biggest things for me are monitoring my diet. I am unbelievably shocked at how much diet has an impact. And I want everyone to understand diet doesn't mean um, depriving yourself. Diet means eating what you're supposed to, to feel good. And once you figure whatever works for you, it is kind of amazing. And for me, I avoid gluten and dairy Um, and then sleep without a doubt, I, I'm, I have a hard time going to bed early, but now I'm having to, because at this stage of my life, no matter when I go to bed, I get up at six. And so if I don't go to bed early, then it's a struggle the next day. And so really, and again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about when you go to sleep is so important. I think our bodies are on a natural rhythm rhythm and we have to figure out what um, ours is. So mine is seven hours of sleep. So if I can do 11 to six, I am good. Sleep is like a number one priority. My life revolves around it. Um, yeah. So if I get sleep movement and my diet in right, it's, it's all good. It is all good. <laughs> Those are the three big ones for yes. so many. Yeah. Myself included, I would say I would agree. So last question, what does wild mean to you? Wild. It, for me, um, wow. Wild means getting in touch with your true inner soul. And I, I don't know what right now I'm picturing dancing on the street. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. Is that okay? I am. It's I am, perfect. I am. I am in heels and a really cool dress, and I just I'm outside on my block, dancing in the street and making everyone laugh. Like right now, <laughs> that is what is wild to me. I love it. Are you going to go do this when we are done with this conversation? I think that you know, would be I fun. I have dinner Georgie. with friends. I think I might dress up and like do a little strut through New York City. <laughs> I love it. Pretend feel silly. <laughs> That's so fun. It's a dork. And, and it just came to you when I said it the just, word wild, right? It just, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you were, you were imagining. I was saying, I certainly didn't think that I was. I had a blank canvas. I was, <laughs> I had no idea. And I love, I love hearing the responses to this question. I, this is the first time I've ever well, not the first. It's interesting because a lot of us have a visualization. Um, someone else that I was chatting with recently, they had a, an interesting visualization similar to you, but it wasn't the same one. So it's just neat how you can see and feel what that is like and what colors your dress yeah. <laughs> what kind of music is it? Yeah. And that you might even embody that later. I love it. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would love to leave listeners with about advocating for their health? I know there's so many things, but anything that I didn't ask you that you really wanted to share? Yeah. The one thing that I, I didn't cover is the, let's not minimize the importance of educating women when we're young and openly having conversations about our bodies. And this is really a message to every mother, every teacher, sister, daughter, aunt. I may have missed something, cousins. Um, And I think it's just really, really important to speak about it. And I will tell you when you do it is shocking what people will share with you. Someone just needs to initiate it. And it's not just one-on-one. I think schools really need to start rethinking what they're teaching young girls. Um, And so I would say it has to start early so that there isn't shame in having the conversations. And then, you know, I laid out the details earlier, so I'll just leave it with this is when you know your body and your soul, it is incredibly empowering And it's really easy to speak up because you're not coming from a place of anger, fear, and shame. You're coming from a place of love for taking care of yourself. And then it's so easy. And then your intuition comes out. So just, it really opens things up. Um, And so I just want people to understand that. And it's a journey. It's not like you're going to leave this podcast episode tomorrow, go do research and then bang, you're healthy. I mean, I've been on my health journey for well over a decade and I am still learning and evolving because our bodies also change over time. So it's, it's such a beautiful thing and just love yourself, go easy on yourself one day at a time, one minute at a time, and it will happen. You'll get, get on your journey and, and have that great life. And there will be ups and downs along the way, but just enjoy the ride. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. That was perfect. And just thank you for the journey you've been on saying yes to it and all the work that you're doing as a result of it. It's really important and I'm just grateful for you. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And thank you to those of you watching, listening, learning with us. 
I appreciate you sharing this episode with someone who you think it might inspire, be helpful to, and for everything we talked about in this episode, including where you can connect with today's guest, Georgie Kovacs, just head to the show notes that you see linked here where you're listening or go to jennyholbert.com forward slash 122. And until we chat again, go live your one wild life.